From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Sixteen people. That's like the number of people you might invite to a very chill housewarming party. It's the audience at an undergraduate poetry reading. It's the number of people you know named Dave. And right now, 16 is also the number of people whose votes could decide an election that affects 2.3 million New Yorkers. At this moment, there are a bunch of people sitting in an old shopping mall, hand-counting every ballot in the Democratic primary race for Queens District Attorney. They're checking over all the boxes, examining each stray ink mark, tallying every vote on a piece of paper with a red pen. This is a situation where, quite literally, every vote matters. It's exciting. And one person who's been excited about this race since way before these ballots came in is my colleague, Rebecca. Um, I'm Rebecca Traster. I uh, write for New York Magazine in the Cut. Rebecca got interested in the Queen's DA race thanks to a candidate named Tiffany Caban. Tiffany was a 31-year-old public defender. She was running on a progressive platform, promising to change the way criminal justice worked in Queens. She wanted to do things like decriminalize sex work and end cash bail. Rebecca remembers one of the first times Tiffany grabbed her attention. It was during a debate she was watching on TV. One of the moderators said, there's been a spike in crime in Queens. How would you react to that? And that's obviously, that was a question designed to set her up to say like, don't worry, I'm going to like imprison all those people who've been committing crimes. And she didn't take the bait. What she did was say, look, before we talk about spiking crime, we have to go to the root cause of why is this crime happening? What are the circumstances that are creating a world in which there is this criminal activity? And imagining that it's not just people sitting down and being like, hmm, time to commit some crimes right. today unless right. prison deters me. Exactly. <laughs> and taking a look at the economic circumstances, healthcare, education, social services, all of this. And the job as district attorney is going to be for me to take that approach at the root rather than like pruning what has already grown, right? Yeah. Okay. And so I heard her say that and I just was like, oh my God, somebody's talking sense. An answer like that, daring to suggest that people who'd committed crimes were people and that they weren't operating in a vacuum. Rebecca had been waiting a long time to hear a candidate give an answer like that. And politicians rarely did because they assumed that sounding soft on crime would be political suicide. And we have seen crime used against progressives and against Democrats for my entire life in this country. Federal level, presidential level, state level. That's the bait question. Is like, okay, you're running for political office. How are you going to make me feel safe? And the answer to that is always supposed to be, I'm going to put bad people in jail. This is especially true when you look at candidates who are running for the job of district attorney. On the most basic level, it's a job that puts you in a position to decide who the bad people are and which ones should go to jail. And people who run for the job of district attorney tend to be prosecutors, lawyers who get up every day, go to court, and argue for someone to be punished. But Tiffany Caban is not a prosecutor, and that's part of what got Rebecca Traster so excited about her. Tiffany Caban has spent her career as a public defender, someone who gets up every day, goes to court, and argues over and over for people to be set free. Tell me about your job as a public defender. I love my job as a public defender. A little while after watching that debate, Rebecca went to visit Tiffany's campaign office. 
And they hit it off, not least because Rebecca knows a little bit about what it's like to be a public defender. Rebecca is married to one. I mean, I mean, you have you have to to know this, oh, right? Know. Like we I live know. we live for what we do. You know, when I say I'm a public defender, I say it in the same way that I say I am queer, I'm a Latina, I am a public defender. Like it is that just that tied to my identity, and it's just it's powerful work. It's really a reward, but it's also it's trauma work, and it's really heavy. And I'm convinced it also shaves years off your life. When I, I, I distinctly remember one of the first dates I ever went on, maybe the very first conversation I ever had with my husband when he was explaining to me what he did, I was like, whoa, you know, this sounds hard. And he goes, oh, yeah. And he, like, listed all of his friends who had had to, like, take a year off, one mm-hmm. of his very close friends who, like, went and studied butterflies in South America for a year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so like, you have to do You it. have to take a year. You got to like, go study butterflies. Right, you got to go to the butterflies <laughs> just, yeah. just for a little while, and then you can come back, right? It takes a lot of butterflies to ease the burden of life as a public defender. You spend every day staring at the human cost of the criminal justice system. You're with people during some of the worst moments of their lives. And you know that a lot of the time, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to help them very much. So I represented a a client who, when he was a very young man, so like when he was in late teens, early 20s, he picked up his first two violent felonies. And he had been out of trouble for a really long time, was in his you know, mid-40s, picked up a new case. It was a gun possession case and not condoning gun possession at all, right? He was accused of, of possessing the gun. There weren't any accusations of him pulling it out or using it or anything like that. In New York, there's what amounts to a three strikes law for violent felonies. And those strikes never expire. So even though the first two had happened a long time ago, the gun possession charge still counted as a third strike. He now faced the possibility of life in prison. When we were preparing for trial, one of the things that you do is you listen to your client's Rikers calls because you know that something could be said that the DA may use against them. So we listened. I listened to all of his Rikers calls. And we're talking about like like over 100 calls. And every single phone call, almost every single phone call, started with him talking to his three-year-old son. And, like, he loved that kid. And that little boy loved his dad. And it was just so clear that he was not only present in his life, but, like, he was a good father. Obviously had made mistakes, but a good father. We knew that, like, this was a dead case. We knew that there were, like, the defense that we presented was temporary lawful possession, which if you are like in the public defense world, you know that that's like a, a Hail Mary defense. And it's like, well, it's what we had. And so we knew that we were likely to lose. And when that verdict came down and he was found guilty, I remember going home and just really being shook and lose, like just emotionally losing it. All I could think was like, that little boy is not going to have his father in his life. And what does that mean for him? growing up because one it makes it that much more likely that he ends up in contact with the justice system and there were just so many things that was wrong with that that we could have and should have done differently and after the the verdict came down you do a thing right everybody goes up to the judge and the judge tells the prosecutor tells the defense attorney like you know you did a good job and all those things and the DA turns to me and my co-counsel and says I think you're right. You know, a life sentence is not the just thing here. 
So before I broke down like with sadness around this, what I'm feeling is rage because I'm like, well, you are in the position of power. You could have made this guy an offer. So to be able to say after the trial that you think that maybe that's not the just result, that maybe he shouldn't spend the rest of his life in prison, you know, it just illustrates just all the things that are wrong with our system. But what if you had a DA who was interested in changing the system? The job of Queens district attorney had been held by the same man since 1991. But earlier this year, he announced that he wouldn't run again. So the field looked open for the first time in nearly three decades. One of Tiffany's friends sent her a text out of the blue. It said, dude, run for DA in Queens. Prior to the actual text, had you in your imagination thought maybe someday I should be the candidate? No, no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then when you got the text. I was like, that's fucking crazy. Tiffany had never run for elected office before. And as a public defender, she'd spent her career fighting against a DA's office. If she decided to run for the Democratic nomination, she'd be up against six other candidates, some of whom were twice her age, four of whom had been prosecutors. There was a man who had been a New York State Supreme Court justice and a woman who was the Queen's borough president and had support for most of the Queen's Democratic Party. Tiffany, meanwhile, had a little bit of money saved up, but running a campaign takes more than a little bit of money. It takes a lot of money, plus people who know what to do with it. So yes, the idea of running for Queen's DA seemed fucking crazy. But it also seemed like it would be worth it. She kept thinking about her clients, the hundreds of people she'd represented, and what it would take to make things turn out differently for them and their families. She thought of people like that dad who went away for life and his son. That's a case that, like, I will... I... I'll never forget that kid's voice. (laughs) Um, Yeah. If you had been district attorney, what kind of power, what could you have done from that office that would have resulted in a different outcome for that client and his son? Like, personally, I don't believe in death by imprisonment. As a DA, I think that you have to make really difficult decisions. And so if there is a situation where the determination after looking at every option says that like there is no way to keep somebody in the community without hurting themselves and others, then we will make the decision to say we think it's appropriate that somebody be removed. Then we can have larger conversations around what is wrong with with our prison system, right? But like it should be the very last resort. And we weren't at last resorts with this man and his family. Tiffany felt like there was a world where this guy could have gone home to his kid and the whole family would have been better off. But for something like that to happen, someone would have to make radical changes to the way a DA's office measures its own success. Right now, what is driving decision-making is how quickly can we get the convictions, you know, what the sentences are, how many jail sentences we can get, rather than saying our goal is not to get that conviction at all costs. Our goal is to figure out what it takes to reduce recidivism, to figure out what it takes to keep somebody rooted in their community without compromising public safety, what it takes to apply the law fairly across racial and class lines. Tiffany had spent years commiserating with other public defenders about how messed up things were, going out for drinks after work and talking about the stuff they'd all seen. After she got that text telling her she should run for office, she met some of her friends at a bar. They said if she wanted to try to change things, they'd help her build a campaign. So she decided to give it a shot, even though in the beginning she had no idea what she was doing. How did you learn the things you had to do? Like, 
How did you feel? Was there a list? Did somebody give you no, like, a, I mean, is there a recipe? <laughs> trial by fire, just like right into the deep end. We were just figuring out as we went. Tiffany and her friends went looking for support, talking to political organizations and journalists. And Tiffany noticed she kept getting the same reaction. Being completely on the outside, being a woman of color, being younger. One of the most frustrating experiences I have had throughout this is every time I go in for a screening or many times in different interviews where people have not spoken to me before, afterwards, the person will call somebody on my staff and say, oh my God, that was amazing. She's, she's, she's really smart. She really knows her stuff. And I'm like, well, fuck, of course I do. Like, I, like, what, like what is that? It's so infuriating. Then Tiffany got an endorsement from the Democratic Socialists of America, the same group whose backing helped Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez win last year. And in May, AOC herself came out in support of Tiffany Caban. The Working Families Party backed Tiffany, too. More and more people got involved in her campaign. And in the months leading up to the Democratic primary, some 1,400 Caban volunteers would knock on more than 160,000 doors. The act of running, scheduling, staffing, door knocking, registering, petition signing, and in order to be successful, that is stuff you're doing every morning, every night, every morning, every night, every day, every afternoon, every weekend. The actual reality of campaigning for office is physically really brutal, mentally really brutal, and it's being undertaken by people who are doing it because they really believe against very long odds. Yeah. My campaign manager, you know, his mom cooks cooks me meals and sends them to my apartment. What kinds of meals? Oh, Italian. So like just massive amounts of <laughs> carbs and more carbs and it's delicious. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like nights, weekends, lunchtimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're living on savings? I am. I am. Dwindling savings. What about friends? And uh, Do you have a partner? Uh, I do not. Um, campaigns are hard. So yeah. I had a, I had a partner at the beginning of this <laughs> campaign. I no longer do not, but um, I no longer do. But uh, uh, I am, yeah, things are good. Um, yeah. She didn't have a partner, but she did have Bernie Sanders. In the last week of the campaign, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, and the New York Times all gave her their endorsements. And then finally, it was election day. If Tiffany managed to win this primary, it was almost certain she'd go on to win the general election and become Queen's district attorney. I voted at around like 10 o'clock. And that was that was pretty emotional. Like also just stepping into the booth and seeing my name. And I, I'm even getting a little emotional thinking about it now. Like it's a very, very surreal moment. Election day. This is the point where you start to feel, for better or worse, like you've done just about everything you can. You're pushing through, trying to get out every vote and make that final sprint count because the end is in sight. Except that's not how it went for Tiffany Caban. After the break, what happens when it all comes down to a handful of votes? Welcome back. This week, we're talking about Tiffany Caban, 
a young public defender who made a long shot run for Queens DA. Tiffany's team had planned a party for election night. Hundreds of her supporters and volunteers had squeezed into a nightclub in Woodside, Queens, to watch as the returns came in. I couldn't really, yeah, I couldn't be out in the room with folks. One, just an overwhelming amount of people, and I was very, very anxious. I didn't eat, I didn't drink. Like, we were in a back room, and, you know, they kept bringing back bottles of wine and stuff, and I was like, no, I can't, can't do it, can't do it. Yeah. It started feeling very, very real early on because, well, we've, you know, we've got 10,000 votes, we've got 15,000 votes, we've got 20,000 votes, well, we have 30 plus thousand votes. And that was, that was very, very cool. And I mean, it, it obviously was so close throughout the night. I was following along from home, refreshing the New York Times vote count, refreshing Twitter. It was probably the most attention I've ever paid to a local election. And it was nerve wracking because it was so, so close. Tiffany was in the lead by a tiny margin that kept looking like it could disappear. She'd gain a few votes, and then her closest challenger, Melinda Katz, would gain a few votes. When I went to bed, Tiffany had a small, steady lead that looked like it would hold. Do you have somebody back there being like, okay, now we have a level of assuredness that you can go out and declare victory? Like, was there like a moment where they were like, okay? Yeah, I think as time went on, obviously it remained pretty close. Um, Once we hit, you know, 85 percent, 90 percent of the numbers coming in and we had a lead of like at least a thousand, we felt pretty good about going out and being able to declare at that point. They said I was too young. They said I didn't look like a district attorney. They said we could not build a movement from the grassroots. They said we could not win. But we did it, y'all. But Melinda Katz wasn't ready to concede. Tiffany Caban holds a lead of just over 1,000 votes, with 99 percent of precincts reporting. But her main opponent, Queensboro President uh, Melinda Katz, says she will not concede without a recount and with over 3,000 absentee ballots remaining to be counted. For the next 24 hours, everyone tried to figure out who had won and what would come next. Sources say Melinda Katz has pulled ahead of rival Tiffany Caban after absentee and affidavit votes were counted yesterday. Election day had come and gone. But all anyone seemed to know was that the race wasn't over yet. Melinda Katz or Tiffany Caban, it could take weeks until we find out who really won the Democratic primary for Queens District Attorney. At first, it seemed like this was all going to be solved by counting the absentee and affidavit votes. Affidavit votes are the ones from voters whose polling places didn't have them on file for whatever reason. And in a normal election, the results are clear cut enough that you don't have to worry about what the affidavits say. But now both campaigns wanted to know. Looking at the affidavits, it turned out, only made the race even closer. And within a week, the official size of Melinda Katz's lead was just 16 votes. So now a manual recount is underway. And Caban's legal team is fighting to include dozens of ballots that they say were wrongly invalidated. Ballots that could put Caban back in the lead. No one's quite sure how long all of this is going to take. Does this part of the process cost money? Oh my God, does it. Once we knew that we had to get lawyers involved and we were going to have this recount in 48 hours, I mean, without me even picking up a phone, we raised almost $200,000. But it looks like $200,000 might not be enough. 
Do you have an estimate of what this is going to cost? It really depends. It depends on how things develop in court. We're in a place where we're challenging a little over 100 ballots, but as we're going through them again, there's a possibility that we challenge way more. And then, you know, that also involves going out and finding those voters as witnesses who may have to testify in court. So, you know, in addition to attorneys, we have volunteer folks being investigators, going out and knocking on people's doors and talking to them and, you know, have folks that want to come in and testify and say, hey, I voted. I want my vote to be counted. We don't know at this point, as of this recording, whether or not she's going to be district attorney. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we do know for sure that she came within at least 16 votes of becoming district attorney, that people came out and voted for this person who was taking this radical approach to how we understand crime and punishment in this country— a more radical, humane, moral, and ethical approach. This is unbelievably thrilling to me. And it's not an isolated incident either. We talked to Josie Duffy Rice. She's president of The Appeal, a site that reports on criminal justice. And she says that when she looks at what's going on with Tiffany Caban, she sees the next step in a trend that she's been watching unfold for the last several years. I would say that it started in a small parish in Louisiana called Caddo Parish. That's where Shreveport, Louisiana is. It has about 200, 250,000 people. The story Josie told me about Shreveport starts with a man named Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford had been on death row. He had been convicted when he was in his early 30s, and this was in 1984. Glenn Ford's a black guy. He was accused of killing a white man, and the jury was all white. Glenn Ford basically didn't stand a chance. But in 2013, it became clear that Ford was innocent, that evidence that could have cleared his name had been suppressed, that he'd served 30 years for a crime he didn't commit. The following year, he was released from prison. When he was finally exonerated 30 years later, he had stage four lung cancer. And so he only lived about another year before he died. And there was a 60 Minutes episode about his case. And they interviewed Dale Cox, who at the time was this DA in Caddo Parish. And they asked him whether or not he thought that this was justice and whether or not he thought that Glenn Ford's case was proof that the death penalty is a flawed punishment that needed to be eliminated in the criminal justice system. The system did not fail, Mr. Ford. It did not. It did not. In fact, the system... How can you say that? Because he's not on death row, and that's how I can say it. Getting out of prison after 30 years is justice? Well, it's better than dying there, and it's better than being executed. And what Dale Cox said was that he thinks we need to kill more people. I think society should be employing the death penalty more rather than less. There was a moment of saying, like, wait a second, this does not align with our values. What Dale Cox had said sparked a national backlash. Cox withdrew from the DA race. And it was a huge moment of proof that this is not what people want, right? They don't want a DA out there saying we need to kill more people. They don't want a DA out there saying that 30 years in prison for a murder you didn't commit is justice. And so that was kind of the first major shift in this conversation. That's what I would say was the beginning moment. Since then, a small but growing number of places across the country have elected prosecutors who reject the punish-more-people approach to criminal justice. These are candidates who have focused their campaigns on things like ending mass incarceration, standing up to police misconduct, and treating addiction as a medical problem instead of a crime. And they've won. It's happened in places like Chicago, like Houston, and like Philadelphia, with their new DA, Larry Krasner. 
I mean, w- with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, right? Like people told him, if you run on any one of these things, you're going to lose. And so he was just like, well, then fuck it. We're going to run on all of them. Right. Honestly speaking, right, w- when we talk about change in general, people resist and, and studies show and support this small changes and large changes at the same degree. So you might as, you might as well push. Right. You might as well push. Still, you'll be pushing uphill. Trying to run a campaign as an outsider means you don't get the financial safety net that comes with establishment support. For Tiffany, running meant budgeting her savings to make it through until June 25th, the day of the primaries. She hadn't expected to find herself in a fight that could take months. What are you, Tiff, doing for work right now? It's so bad. Um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure that out. Right now I'm in, on unpaid leave. And I don't have health insurance. And it has been, you know, it's going on like four, a good four. I was working while campaigning in the beginning, but it's going on like four months now of just eating through my savings, which again, like I want to acknowledge my own privilege in that I had built up some savings to be able to support myself throughout this campaign. But like it's getting, I'm, I feel like I'm at just kind of an inflection point because no matter what I need to, I need to work very soon. Um, and so that's just like an added stress to everyday people running for, for office. I will have to work because, you know, there's got to pay my bills. Until every vote is counted, Rebecca Traster and I will be just two of the New Yorkers watching and waiting to see what happens. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy and Stella Bugby. Fact-checking is by Ben Phelan. Mixing is by Emma Munger. Our music is by Emma Munger, Haley Shaw, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvanesso. That's Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarlay, and Alexandra Souser-Monig. Special thanks to Noreen Malone, Monica Klein, Daniel Loomer, Aziz and Sadaf Hassan, Dave Ruder, and Caitlin Penner. If you want to support The Cut's work on and off the mic, you can do that by subscribing to nymag.com. Just go to thecut.com slash subscribe. We would really appreciate it. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.